Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you tonight to take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to read in your hearing verses 4 to 12. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll begin reading at verse 4. I'll conclude at verse 12. Please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As you come to him, the living stone... Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. When Jesus and the disciples came to Caesarea Philippi, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They responded, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, maybe even Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets reincarnated. But what about you, Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who responded, Peter, the spokesman for the inner circle, Peter, the loudmouth of the bunch, Peter, the author of our text. It is the Apostle Peter who said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail over it. Jesus is using a play on words when he speaks of Peter and rock, for the word Peter meant rock. And Jesus is declaring, I think, that upon the confession of Peter, the church will be built. There has been some confusion over that throughout the years, you might realize and understand. There's some, dear brothers and sisters, that think that Jesus was saying that on Peter, the church will be built. And so they have identified him as the first pope or the first bishop. But I don't think that Jesus is saying that on Peter, the church will be built. I think he was declaring that on the confession of Peter, the church will be built. And this confession upon which the church rises and falls is that Jesus 
is Christ. He is rock. He is, in our passage, the living stone. So here in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, Peter says that as you, second person plural, y'all, as y'all come to him, him is described as the living stone. So the him must be Jesus. So as y'all come to Jesus, who is the living stone, he is one who is rejected by men, chosen by God, and precious to God. What I find interesting is that there are seven stone passages in the New Testament. Seven. That's not by coincidence, is it? Seven, that number of completion. There are seven passages in the New Testament that speak of the stone, and the stone is always a reference to Messiah, and it's always articulated that the Messiah is Jesus. I will run through these quickly, just giving you the book, the chapter, and the verse. You may want to jot them down. You can look at them later if you want to, but time does not permit us to go through all seven of these passages. But let it be known that the seven stone passages, Matthew 21, verses 42 to 44, Mark chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. You also read of it in Luke chapter 20, verses 17 and 18. Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 9, verses 32 and 33. The apostle Paul referenced this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. And the seventh and final reference is here by the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. Jesus is that living stone. Now, how is he further quantified and described? Rejected by most men. If you stop and think about it, you know that to be true. Most people throughout the ages have rejected Jesus as Christ. Rejected by men. But just because Jesus might not win a popular public opinion poll don't ever get discouraged because Jesus is chosen by God chosen by God to be the living stone the redeemer of creation the architect of creation he is the one chosen by God we've already spoken that that the redemption plan was set in place before the very foundation of the world for you were chosen before the very foundation of the world to be in Christ and to glorify him and God the father chose Jesus to be redeemer before the very foundation of the world Peter has already articulated that in chapter one so the perfect plan of redemption has already been in place long before Genesis 1 1 and so while Jesus may be rejected by some, and we may even say by many, Jesus is not rejected by God. He was chosen by God. Chosen by God to be the living stone. In your English translation, that's probably rendered in capital letters. Because then he quickly follows that by saying, you are also living stones, lowercase letters. So we are like Jesus. Jesus is the living stone. We are Little bitty living stones. It's the imagery of a glorious temple, a, a beautiful building. Uh, Peter, in good preacher fashion, he moves from one analogy to another. At the very end of the passage from last week, he spoke about how we are like children. And that was not a negative thing. That was a very positive thing. We are like children who crave mama's milk. 
And it's, it's, it's obvious to everybody when a baby wants mama's milk. And so it is for us as children of God. We are children who crave a relationship with Jesus Christ. He moves from the imagery of being a child of God to being a stone, part of a building of God. He says, so you are living stones, lowercase. You're part of a spiritual house. Um, that word house in Greek is oikos. For those of you who go on E3 mission trips, you, you realize that's important, the oikos, the oikos map that is built when you ask a new believer who are the people in your sphere of influence, maybe in your literal house or in your symbolic house, your friends, your neighbors. Um, and so we are to be a spiritual oikos. We're to be a spiritual house or a, a dynasty. We are to be a holy priesthood. We are to be individuals who offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what are the sacrifices that you and I offer up to him? It's the way we live our life. It's our behavior. So by our behavior, we are lifting up to a holy God our spiritual sacrifices. And we hope and pray that how we live our lives are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter says that you, you are living stones. Because he uses the same phrase to describe Jesus and us, there is a connection between Christ and the redeemed. You are a living stone. There, there's a relationship that's there. He uses the same phrase, the same terminology. You are to be like Jesus. And this relationship between you and the Redeemer is built upon the resurrection because this stone is living. So Peter, by calling Jesus the living stone, he is speaking and testifying to the resurrection of Christ. And what happened to Jesus will happen to Jesus' people. So as Jesus was Betrayed, we will be betrayed. As Jesus suffered, we will suffer. As Jesus was vindicated, so we will be vindicated. As Jesus was raised from the dead, so we will be raised from the dead. We are to be like Big Brother Jesus. He is living stone, capital letter. We are living stone, lowercase letter. And we're not just stones that are in a pile. We're not just stones that are scattered abroad. We're not just stones that are in ruin. You know, you go someplace and you see ancient ruins. What does that mean? It means that their heyday has come and gone. I mean, it used to be something mighty and majestic, but now it's just a pile of rubble. Now it's just, it's just what's left over. It's in ruins. That is not who you are. You are part of something grand and glorious. You are part of the spiritual house of God. You are part of a temple that God is building. You, along with the Christian that's beside you, along with the brother that's in front of you, along with the sister that's behind you, along with the person that trusts Christ halfway around the world, along with the person that has long lived and died on planet Earth, we are all together part of something new, glorious, and beautiful, and it's called the family of God, yes, but Peter calls it the spiritual house of God. This is who we are. This is what we're a part of. So we're part of something so glorious and so beautiful. It is a righteous temple. One commentator said it this way, the glory of this temple that Peter refers to will only be completed when the scaffolding of human history comes down and the kingdom of Christ 
is revealed in all of its glory. Right now, God is still constructing, still building his glorious temple. And there's scaffolding all around. If you've ever been to a place of construction or renovation, you see the scaffolding and it it looks kind of ugly. It doesn't look completed. It doesn't look beautiful. But when that scaffolding comes down, you see what was built in all of its glory and all of its splendor. That's what Peter is saying that right now in this world that's full of deceit and deception, that's full of sin and misery, right now because of the total depravity of humanity, there is a scaffolding all over the world. But there's coming a day when all that scaffolding will come down and Jesus, the living stone, will reveal his ultimate creation, which is the spiritual house of God, this holy tent, this righteous tent. So there are seven stone passages in the New Testament I've already mentioned. There are three Old Testament stone passages, and Peter mentions all three of them in the verses that follow. In verse 6, he mentions Isaiah 28. In verse 7, he mentions Psalm 118. In verse 8, he mentions Isaiah 8. These are the three places where this same kind of stone language. Now, let me be quick to add. There are other Old Testament passages that speak of God as our rock and our redeemer. That's a different word. So here, uh, Peter is using just that stone imagery. And so he picks up, beginning in verse 6, a reference of Isaiah 28. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Once again, uh, Peter is, is putting the dots together and connecting that Jesus is that stone in Zion. He was a chosen, precious cornerstone. Cornerstone is that, is that first stone. It's that stone that kind of puts a secure foundation in place. It kind of holds the walls together. It makes sure that not only the foundation is sure and united, but the building is straight, pure, and plumb. If the cornerstone's off, the whole building will be off. If the cornerstone is true, the whole building will be true. And so here, Jesus is that precious cornerstone. He's that valuable cornerstone. That word precious, Peter uses it all the time. He spoke about the precious blood of the lamb. Here he speaks about the precious cornerstone. And that cornerstone is is that which is in place that makes a sure foundation and makes sure that what is being built is pure and straight. Isaiah says, the one who trusts in him, the living stone, will never be put to shame. Now once again, um, it's so powerful because Isaiah is not just speaking to his people, but he is also speaking in the days of the first century to the people the apostle Peter's writing to, but not just there. It's not just limited to the Bible. Isaiah is speaking to you. He's speaking to me. Isaiah lived 700 years before the coming of Christ. And Isaiah, the prophet of old, that's repeated by the apostle Peter and declared to you tonight that the one who trusts in the living stone will never be put to shame, regardless of how life is going. Because in Isaiah's day, in Peter's day, maybe in your day, everything looks like it's crumbling down. Everything looks in turmoil. In, in Peter's day, uh, you know, they were, they were scattered Scattered, not in the big cities, but the small cities. They were scattered. Peter references this scattering, this diaspora, as if it's like 
uh, the Babylonian captivity when God's people were scattered in the Old Testament. Here, they're scattered in the days of the first century. And they're scattered abroad and they're suffering persecution because of their faith in Christ. They're losing their jobs. They're losing their possessions. Their property is being confiscated. They're being ridiculed. They're being shamed. They're being dogged by the people that were living on the right and on the left of them. And they wondered, is it really worth it? And here Peter reminds the church, yes, it is worth it. Because if you have faith in Jesus Christ, regardless of what your surroundings may say, you will never be shamed by God for all of eternity. He knows where you are and who you are and he knows how you are. He hasn't forgotten you. Even though you feel scattered, you feel overwhelmed, you, you just, everything is falling apart. But, but the living stone, he knows where he's placed you in this righteous temple. He, he knows what role you have to play. He knows exactly how you're doing. And so you will never be put to shame. Isaiah tells us that I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen precious cornerstone, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Verse seven, now to you who believe, this stone is precious. Can I get an amen? I mean, if you, if, I was hoping it'd be more hearty than that, but that's okay. Um, I mean, if, if you know Jesus, don't you know him to be valuable? Don't you know him to be precious? Once again, there's that terminology again. That the word precious, it, it does mean very valuable. It, it means top shelf. It, it means something that is treasured in your life. And if you know the living stone, if he is the cornerstone, the rock of your life, then you know him to be precious. Now, do you who believe this stone is precious but to those who do not believe, he quotes Psalm 118 and quickly follows it by Isaiah 8. In Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. To those who believe, Jesus is precious. To those who reject the stone are those who, re who jeopardize their own salvation. If you turn away from Christ, you have nowhere else to turn. If, 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 if a person rejects Jesus, um, then that which you and I regard as precious, they will not regard as precious. Uh, for he will judge them rightly because of their condemnation. So a stone that will cause men to stumble a rock that makes them fall. That's Isaiah chapter 8. It's the imagery that Jesus lays across the road of humanity. He cannot be ignored. Jesus cannot be ignored. Every person has to do something with Jesus. You cannot sidestep him. You cannot step over him. You cannot bypass him. That's what Isaiah is saying. That's what Peter is saying. Someone may say, well, I just reject it. Therefore, if I reject it, it's not true. Uh, that is a, that is a, that's false logic. Um, just because you reject it doesn't mean that it's not true. Jesus lays across the road of humanity and every person has to pass by him. Uh, you, you, you can't step over him, you can't dig underneath him, you can't run around him. You've got to face him, every person, every person who's ever lived, 
Uh, whether they regard themselves as religious or not religious, whether they regard themselves as a believer or a non-believer, whether they think of themselves as spiritual or not so spiritual, every person has to deal with Jesus. You can receive him, you can reject him, but you cannot ignore him. He is a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They think they're trucking along, doing fine. They think they're navigating life okay. It's like walking in the forest. And all of a sudden, as you walk in the forest, you trip over something. You look around and say, what was that? Oh, it's that big stone that's sticking up. How did I miss that? Right? Isaiah, Peter, they say, that's Jesus. I mean, if you think you can just ignore him and reject him, he will reach up and, and inevitably you will trip and fall. So then, Peter says they stumble because they disobey the message. The ancient word message is logos, it's word. I think that's a reference to the gospel. Uh, they stumble because they disobeyed the gospel. They stumble, they fall, they are condemned, uh, they are separated from God because uh, they have rejected, they have disobeyed the gospel, which is also what they were destined for. Peter leaves that little tag there. He, he doesn't really elaborate on it. I kind of wish he would have. <laughs> because um, what, what he does, he, he stirs a, thir- a theological uh, stew right there. He kind of he stirs the pot just a bit. I mean, Peter, what are you saying? Are you saying that people who reject Jesus, that they stumble and they fall on account of who Jesus is because, yes, they disobeyed the message? Are are you saying that this is what they were destined for? Are you saying that in some way they had no real choice in the matter? Or are you saying that that they, they were created to stumble? Are you saying they were created to fall from the Lord? Oh, Peter, what are you saying? Are you saying that that God appointed their disbelief, which then necessarily resulted in their stumbling? Or Peter, are you saying that, that by God's decree, he declared that those who do not believe will inevitably stumble? So in other words, you hear the dilemma of the phrase. The, the dilemma is, um, uh, Peter, are you saying that God is the one who declared their unbelief, causing them to stumble? Or are you saying that, that, that they denied Jesus and they're at fault for stumbling? Peter, what are you saying? He doesn't elaborate, does he? I wish he would have. It sure would make preaching a lot easier. He doesn't really elaborate. He just kind of throws a statement there and then moves right on. But let me try to... Uh, Try to walk through a little bit of what I think he's saying. I mean, I know he doesn't elaborate, so I need to take caution not to elaborate too much either. I probably need to take my lead from the author who had the authorial intent uh, and, and the authority. But I will say this, uh, that I am certain that God appointed Jesus as the living stone. Therefore, it brings honor to believers and judgment to unbelievers. So by God declaring that Jesus is living stone, by God declaring that every person must must deal with Jesus, um, God is declaring that you can only have one of two decisions with Jesus. Either you can receive him or you can reject him. Those are only two options. 
And by God's appointment, Jesus is living stone. Therefore, it will bring honor to those who believe in Jesus. It will bring judgment for those who do not believe in Jesus. But can I be very clear? I think, I, I, I think I'm going to go to my grave with this. To deny Jesus is to deny at your own peril. What do I mean? I mean, nobody can say, no, no lost person can say it's God's fault. No lost person can say it is God's fault. To deny the gospel, to deny the sufficiency of Jesus, for a person to deny who Jesus is, is to their own demise, to their own peril. You cannot blame God for that. And by me saying that, um, you, you may catch on that I, I do not affirm um, double predestination. I, I don't think that the Bible teaches double predestination. I think that the Bible communicates election uh, for those who are being saved. Um, but double predestination says that God chose some to be saved and some to be condemned. And um, I think that the reading of the scripture declares that all of us are condemned. And by God's sheer grace, some of us come to faith in Jesus Christ. The amazing thing about salvation is not the reality that some are saved and some are not. The amazing thing about salvation is that any of us are saved to begin with. That's the amazing reality about salvation. So I do not affirm double predestination. I do affirm election uh, because it's a biblical concept. Um, it's a biblical doctrine that we hold dear, but I do not think that Peter, nor Paul, nor anybody else in the scripture affirms double predestination. Some were created to be saved and some were created to be condemned. No, I think that, that Paul is pretty clear that all of us are condemned. I mean, we were born sinful, completely dead in our sin. But the amazing reality of my life is that God, in his great power and in his great mercy and by his spirit, he opened my eyes unto his salvation and my need for him, and I am saved. And this is a hallelujah moment, not because some are saved and some are not, but the hallelujah moment is that any of us would be redeemed. And so if you are redeemed, you, yes, you, you willfully came to that decision, but you better quickly say, Thank you, Jesus. I mean, because it's not that you chose him first. He chose you first. He chose you before the very foundation of the world, okay? So I think that Peter is declaring that, that yes, um, they were destined for this, and at some level, all of us are completely and utterly condemned. But I think that then in verse 9, he quickly, quickly uh, hinges and goes to, but you. But you are a chosen people. Do you hear how quickly he moves off of that phrase? So I'm going to quickly move off of that phrase, okay? So he kind of leaves it out there, and then he can't get to the next line fast enough. But you, I've told you before that I love the holy butts of the Bible. I mean, I love the big butts of the Bible, right? I mean, you do too. Um, places like where Joseph said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Or where David said, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. 
or where Paul said in Ephesians, we were dead in our sins, but God made us alive in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I love those divine conjunctions. I love those big butts of the Bible. You come to 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 9, and there is a huge butt of the Bible, right? I mean, this is, people are condemned. Humanity condemned because of sin. But you, but you, you've been chosen. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people. A chosen people. What does that mean? It means a new race of people. You've been chosen. You're not just white or black. You're in Christ. A new race of people. A new identity. When we think about our identity, we realize that most of us, when we think about our lives, we are overcommitted, overworked, and overwhelmed. We think about who are we, what is my identity, and some of us are, are shaped by uh, our family, our work, our sports, our hobbies, our friends, our entertainment, our politics, our nationality. All those things kind of shape who we are, and we're just kind of hodgepodge of all types of identity. And sometimes a church or Christ is just a small component or compartment of a competitive environment called life. But what does Peter say? Peter says, no. No, Uh, church is not part of who we are. Christ is not a component of my life. Jesus is my race. I mean, I belong to him. He he has chosen me. I've been sovereignly selected by him. And so, so I'm part of that glorious, beautiful temple of God. I'm part of a new race of people. It doesn't have anything to do with ethnicity. It has nothing to do with the color of skin. It has everything to do with faith in Jesus Christ who is the living stone. So that you and I, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we have more in common than anything that divides us. If you are in Christ, you have more in common with another person in Christ than anything that would divide you. I remember a missionary who was born and raised in Owenton, Kentucky at the very first church that I pastored. He came back home on furlough and we went to Dairy Queen because that was the only place in Owenton, Kentucky where you could go have a breakfast. So we went to Dairy Queen. I'll never forget when he was sharing with me about his ministry and what he was doing in Ethiopia. And maybe I just had a distant look in my eyes or maybe I was distracted by the sausage biscuit. I don't know exactly why it was, but he looked at me and he said, Davin, you do know that you have more in common with a brother in Ethiopia who knows Christ than you do with your cousin who shares your last name and your own blood who's lost. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. You're exactly right. Somebody that I do not know, but yet we know the same Jesus. We have more in common. We have more in common than a cousin who bears my last name, who if he were to die tonight, would feel the flames of hell. And that's the cousin that I was raised with, that I played with, that I I know. He's my blood. He's my family. But somebody on the other end of the world who knows Christ, we have more in common than me and my lost cousin. What's true for me is also true for you. 
Now, when you actually stop and think about that, and if you're under the assumption that everybody on a church membership role is a believer, okay, and that is an assumption, okay, but if you go with the assumption that everybody that on the church membership role is a believer, then that shapes how we interact with each other. Because we interact with people that literally are blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. And, let's go even a step further. Do you know what's going to help the racial divide in this country and in this world? The gospel. And nothing other than the gospel will help it. The help for a racial divide is not going to come from the White House and it's not going to come from an elephant or a donkey. The longer I live, the more I'm convinced that the people of the elephant and the people of the donkey actually want there to continue to be racial division and tension in the United States of America. I actually think that those who are of the donkey and of the elephant, I actually think that they stir up the whole racial division and racial divide, and that's how they want it to be. The only remedy for racism is the gospel. Because when a person is saved, it does not matter what their skin color is. It does not matter their ethnicity. It doesn't matter what side of the street or the tracks they were raised on. It doesn't matter where they come from. If they are in Christ, if they are part of a little bitty living stone as, as part of the greater living stone, then they are family. So that's why it's still very heartbreaking to realize the most divisive hour of the week is 11 o'clock on Sunday in America. That's why it's devastating to realize that, that there are places where, uh, even here in this city, uh, where there's racial division and tension and white flight. It's so prominent and prevalent in demographic studies and transitioning communities. You know what would help all that? The gospel. Because when we are in Christ, we are a chosen people, which means we're a new race of people. We are a royal priesthood. This is the only epistle to use that magnificent title, a royal priesthood. We are, we are of nobility. Why? Because the God of the cosmos sent King Jesus. And if we believe in King Jesus, we're adopted into his family. So we have royal uh, spiritual blood pulsating through our veins. Royal and a priesthood. This is reminiscent of Exodus 19, that the priesthood set apart to serve God, serve the world. We are a chosen people, which means we're a new race of people. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. Exodus 24, the covenant of Mount Sinai was sealed by the blood of the Lamb. We are a holy nation because the new covenant on Mount Calvary was sealed by the blood of the Lamb. Not only are we a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, we are a special people. And what does that mean, special people? We belong to God. The problem in Peter's day was not that the individuals worshiped Jesus. The problem was they worshiped Jesus alone. They worshiped only Jesus. In those days, there was very much, a lot of religious tolerance. People in the Roman Empire, they didn't care uh, what other gods and goddesses you worshipped. But you had to worship Caesar. And you had to pay taxes unto him. You had to do certain things. But these Christians, these bad citizens of the empire, they were exclusive in their religious claims. They said, we're going to worship Jesus and Jesus alone. 
We are Christian-only people. And that was the problem. The exclusivity of our allegiance to Christ has always been problematic in the world. And let me let you know a little hint. It always will be. Our exclusivity to our allegiance to Christ has always been a problem in the world and it always will be. So don't compromise. Don't let up. Don't soften in your allegiance to Christ. You are a Jesus-only person. Is there another way to heaven? No. It's Jesus alone. Is there, is there another way for a person to be saved? No. It's Jesus alone. But what about the people who've never heard about Jesus? That's a great motivator to get off your keister and go tell them about Jesus, don't you think? I mean, if you're convinced that it's Jesus and Jesus alone, then you need to make it your mission to tell as many people as possible about the only Jesus that can save them. But our exclusive claims of our allegiance to Christ, it will always be a problem. So, a problem in the world. So we are called to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people. Why? Why has God chosen us? Is it because you're cute, creative, ingenious, valuable to him? Why did he choose you? Why did he choose me? Why did he set us apart, chosen royal priesthood, holy nation, special people? Why? So that we would declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into a marvelous light. The reason you were chosen was to praise him and proclaim him. So when you don't praise him and when you don't proclaim him, you're not doing what you were called to do. We were called, we were set apart, we were elected, we were sovereignly selected. Why? It's not because we're so good. It's not because we're so great. Jesus chose us because he said, I, I know that you, you'll praise me. And you'll proclaim how you used to walk in, in darkness, but now you walk in the marvelous light. And so much has happened to you, you can't be quiet. So the worst thing that we can do is be silent. And not praise him and not proclaim him. You were not a people, now you are a people. You did not know mercy, now you do know mercy. You've received mercy. So honor the living stone with lips and lives, with walk and talk, with belief and behavior. So he says in verses 11 and 12, dear friends, that's, that friend, that, that, that's agape, that's, that's beloved ones, dear friends. I urge you, I plead with you as aliens and strangers in this world. There's that phrase again, strangers. We are strangers in this world. And by the way, a stranger or a foreigner was not bound to the custom of that nation. Think about that. You're a stranger in America, so you're not bound to live like an American. You don't have to live the sinful pleasures of our American culture. You're not bound to it. Why? Because yes, our citizen is citizenship is here, but we have dual citizenship. Our home is in heaven. We're a stranger here. We're just passing through. So abstain from sinful desires and live a good life. Abstain from sinful desire, that means carnal desires, human impulses. It means um, sexual desires. Abstain from those and on the flip side, live a good life. Not a useless life as described in chapter 1 verse 18 that was passed on to you by your useless parents and grandparents who lived according to the flesh. Live a good life. Abstain from sinful, sexual, carnal, human impulses. I dare say that before this night is over, 
some of you will be confronted by sinful, sexual, carnal, human impulses. I remember I was an early minister, early pastor, early years, and a man took me to lunch, and he had to be in his 70s. And in the course of that lunch, he sat there and began to share with me and talk with me about his struggles with lust. He was over 70 years old. And I gotta be honest with you, that in that moment, I think I probably even articulated it. In that moment, I said, you mean you haven't outgrown that? And I don't know how pastoral that was. <laughs> I don't know how compassionate that was. But I, I mean, I was almost shocked, right? I'm a young minister, and I thought to myself, wow, when I get 72, I mean, surely, aren't you gonna outgrow that? He was so kind and gracious to me, and he said, I wish I had. Something I still have to struggle with and battle. But pastor, I, I battle it. I don't give in to it. I battle it. Give it to Christ. That's what Peter's talking about. You don't just honor the living stone with your lip, also your life. It's not just your belief that you've got right. Your behavior must also be right. And the way you show a watching world and a living God that you belong to him is that yes, you have right belief, but it better lead you to right behavior. And Peter will consistently go to that. It's the two pedals on the bicycle. You gotta have right walk and talk, right lips and lifestyle. You gotta have right belief and behavior in order for the bike to keep going down the road. You gotta have both. Because God is watching and so is a watching world. So live such good lives among pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and they glorify God in the day he visits us. In other words, in the day Jesus comes back. So you live in such a way that the pagan world that, that wants to ridicule you and call you a terrible person, they go, but you know what? There is something really different and peculiar about that individual. He, she calls themselves Christian and there's something drastically different about how they live their life. I think Peter's remembering the words of Jesus and I'll close with this in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter five, verse 16 of Matthew's gospel. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Let your light shine. Let it shine before your children, your grandchildren, your coworkers and your neighbors. Let it shine here at the church and outside the church. Let your life shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your heavenly Father. So this little light of mine, right? I'm gonna let it shine. I'm not gonna let Satan blow it out. I'm not gonna hide it under a bushel, right? This little light of mine, I wanna let it shine. I don't just wanna have right belief, I wanna have right behavior because I am a living stone, lowercase, because God has a place for me in his temple because I'm a believer in the living stone, uppercase. And that makes all the difference. Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you will help us to be that chosen people, that royal priesthood, special individuals belonging to you so that we may proclaim and praise your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.